Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Welcome. Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Single Tongue coming at you today once again. Uh, this is a Chris episode, you guys. Thanks for joining me this morning. Um, what am I doing today? Well, I've been doing David Chalmers' Conscious Mind. That's been a little bit, little bit more difficult than I'd expected. At least it's taken more time than I expected. Uh, what I did was, uh, I don't know, I got a little bored, you know, as people do. Um, <clears throat> can't be the only one that's reading more than one book at once. can't be the only person doing that. It's very um, very difficult to keep things uh, cohesive when you're doing that. Yeah, oftentimes you, uh, you think uh, a passage came from one book or the other. It, you complicate that problem when both books are about consciousness, and um, that's what's happened here. So I wanted to take a little break from David Chalmers and uh, bring to you Modes of Sentience. So I talked about this a little bit before. I struggled uh, quite a lot to um, pronounce the author's name, so I, um, I'll, I'll apologize for that right now. What I did do was uh, went online. I knew this author did a TED Talk, so I took a look at that, tried to find some interviews on uh, online so that I could hear if anybody else pronounced the guy's name so that I didn't have to guess and wouldn't have to sound like a fool. The best I could do was circle back to where I originally heard about the guy on the uh, Mind Escape podcast. Um, gentleman's name uh, is Dr. Peter Shersted Hughes. Shersted Hughes. That is the pronunciation from Mind Escape, so uh, Dr. Hughes, <laughs> your last name is hyphenated, it's probably not appropriate to call you Dr. Hughes, um, but hopefully that is the p- correct pronunciation. Um, it's spelled, you know, S- Scandinavian-like or Germanic-like, uh, S-J umlaut S-T-E-D-T. Does that sound like Shersted to you? Not to me, but I'm American. So apologies, um, Peter Shersted Hughes wrote this book, Modes of Sentience. And I got a copy of it, started reading it, and it's really good. It's really good. It's actually kind of a breath of fresh air compared to Chalmers' Conscious Mind. Uh, Not because Conscious Mind is particularly difficult. It is difficult. Um, But because the arguments that are made in modes of sentience are way more to the point. They're way more concise. And um, they talk about more than just consciousness. talks about uh, panpsychism. Uh, it talks about um, uh, Dr. Shersted Hughes' metaphysics, you know, uh, his own philosophy of the origins of things, um, and and he touches on psychedelics, and he does it in a subtle way, which we'll see today at some point, um, that I find interesting. It's more interesting than strictly 
hearing Chalmers' argument about consciousness because it's it's easier to read um, and it includes more than just the topic of consciousness. It includes those related topics that are of particular interest to me. So, um, so what I what I'm going to do is pivot from Chalmers today. Talk to you about modes of sentience. This um, well, let me let me tell you really quickly about hearing about this on the Mind Escape podcast. That podcast is largely about consciousness and psychedelics, so when I found out about that, I was gravitated towards it, listening a little bit. It's a good one. Um, they had a couple conversations with uh, with the author, uh, Shersted Hughes. I caught the latest one, and what they talked about in that podcast was pretty interesting. The focus was on using the word sentience, and so the book, the book title is Modes of Sentience. We all kind of think about sentience and consciousness to be synonyms, and it turns out they're not really synonyms. Um, we'll hear this from, from the quotes that I'll read you from the book. We'll hear the explanation here, but the idea is something like consciousness is um, a complicated and sophisticated type of sentience, but there are other types of sentience. And when we talk about things being conscious, especially when we start talking about um, particles, you know, being conscious or energy being conscious or things that you wouldn't ordinarily think uh, are conscious. And you could see the argument made pretty powerfully against it, like a rock is not conscious, you know, clearly. Um, that kind of thing. We can avoid those issues if we don't use the word consciousness. So we're not thinking about consciousness like you and I have. But we can talk about sentience and imagine that these things have some basic type of experience and that's what it boils down to i've said this before it's like do you imagine that do you imagine that a star somehow experiences or feels the pull of gravity that it exerts on the things around it do you think it feels the pull of gravity from other galaxies and stars pulling on it do you think it has an experience of some kind of the combustion of hydrogen and helium that are going on inside of it? That's a good question. Um, do you think that a, that an electron or some of these quantum particles, do you think they have an experience of their interaction with each other? Do you think they have, do you think they have an experience of jumping orbitals, you know, having a quantum leap or bonding with another, with another particle, um, you know, um, or compound, you know, in a molecule. Do you think that those types of experiences, you know, they're doing something, right? These these quantum particles and um, you know even the uh, uh, even the the combinations uh, of those particles that, that make up molecules and so forth, they're doing things, you know, they're doing things. So, is it possible that there's some experience that they're having of the things they're doing? That is sentience, and that I think does help you know, have these arguments. It does help have these conversations and make things a little bit more clear. You know, and I never really appreciated, because it's tedious and boring, I uh, never really appreciated um, the specific, the the amount of uh, detail and attention and um, importance that philosophers put on being precise in their language. You know, being a fan of Jordan Peterson, that, that that's something that should that shouldn't be a surprise. You know, he says, be precise in your speech. Um, and there's a reason for that because being precise in your speech is to be precise in your thoughts. And that's something that I've been loosey goosey with to date. Uh, but this whole idea of sentience replacing consciousness as a concept, uh, I actually do quite like, 
And that's where I got introduced to uh, Peter Sherstead Hughes originally from Mindscape, having that conversation. Um, but then I enter, uh, engaged with him a little bit on Twitter, and he's quite the nice fellow. Uh, he's uh, resp- responded, and uh, you know, he's, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, a nobody for lack of a better word, and he's interacting with me online, which is which is sweet, you know. Um, so you know, um, shout out to Peter Sherstead Hughes. We're gonna do. We're going to do an episode today based on modes of sentience, really chapter one, um, because I think it does a great job of answering the question, what is panpsychism? So this is something that I've talked about a lot lately. I talked to uh, Daniel Torden about it a lot on the last interview we did, and even the first interview we did. Just to refresh your memory, panpsychism is one of these ideas that, that stems from mystic intuition. So people that have a mystic religious experience or a psychedelic mystic experience will often talk about uh, feeling like they become one with the universe, feeling an expansion of their consciousness, feeling like consciousness is in everything. And that perhaps there's, perhaps it's of paramount importance to everything that we consider the material world, uh, both objective and subjective. It's a very strange feeling. Um, and, uh, and there's a whole branch of philosophy and a whole branch of religion, really, many branches. And we're going to talk about some of that today, um, that circle around that, the idea that consciousness or mind uh, is somehow paramount or fundamental to everything. Um, and that has to be sort of fit into the scientific narrative, and the fact that it hasn't been is sort of a tragedy. Um, a lot of people talk about that. David Chalmers talked about that. We talked about that with uh, the Conscious Mind episodes. Jordan Peterson talked about that quite a lot. Uh, that gentleman, W. Stacy, that Princeton professor that I quoted many times, he focused heavily on that. And that goes back to the turn of the century. So um, science needs to, needs to understand that it doesn't have a complete explanation to offer, uh, that it needs, uh, it needs to fill some gaps. Without further ado, let's get into it. So we're going to answer that question today. What is panpsychism? I'm not going to be the one to answer that for you. I am going to let Dr. Sherstead Hughes do it. So I don't know how to intro uh, the, the, the good doctor here, but I'll do my best. How to introduce him, how to introduce him. Well, um, his Twitter bio says, says this. It says, Whitehead, Nietzsche, Spinoza, Psilocybin. All right. All right, a man after my own heart. Associate lecturer, TEDx talk. Okay, well, I like a good TEDx talk. Uh, I did listen to um, uh, Peter Sherstead Hughes' TEDx talk. It was quite good. Um, you know, it's short, short and sweet. And I encourage you guys to take a look. So I think this interest in Alfred Whitehead, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, Baruch Spinoza, and then popping in psilocybin as though that's the name of, of, of a f- another philosopher of mind. Pretty interesting. Uh, so you see the psychedelic stuff. You know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Spinoza. We've talked about that. Haven't really had much of an opportunity to get into Nietzsche or Whitehead um, so far in my life. That's probably that's a disappointment. Turns out Whitehead is somebody that I'm going to have to put on the list after reading the beginning of this book. I cannot get out away from that. Alfred North Whitehead seems to be quite the character in terms of um, philosophy of mind, uh, consciousness studies, and, uh, and psychedelics. So uh, he experimented with nitrous oxide himself. So I think that's a pretty good, I mean, just looking at his uh, Twitter bio sums up, um, you know, what we're going to talk about in a nutshell, what his interests are. 
but just so you know, he's a lecturer at Trinity College London. Uh, that's a pretty prestigious thing. Uh, he also teaches philosophy of mind at the University, University of Exeter. Um, personally, uh, Dr. Sherstead Hughes has been pretty approachable to me on Twitter. Like I said, you know, it's always nice to have uh, good interactions with people online. And, uh, you know, I don't know, it came as a bit of a surprise to me. Um, he's also introduced me to such mind-blowing ideas as those of Henri Bergson, who we talked about on the last couple of podcasts. Uh, that, that's going uh, to be something we'll talk about in the future. And a guy named um, Herbert Feigl, F-E-I-G-L. So just, you know, a good follow. A good follow on Twitter, to be sure. Um, he, again, thank you, uh, Dr. Sherstead Hughes, for uh, introducing me to Bergson and uh, Fagel. I'm going to be doing some deeper dive on that. So that maybe that's a good introduction to the author. The next one um, is a quote from the book, but I think it introduces uh, panpsychism a little bit. So I'm just going to read this to you. He talks about the history of panpsychism a little bit, and one of those quotes is this. Panpsychism bears a proud history of eminent thinkers such as Thales and Heraclitus, through to the great Renaissance figures such as Patrizzi and Bruno, to the mind-matter cognizanti of, mod of the modern era, Spinoza, Leibniz, Schopenhauer, William James, Alfred North Whitehead, and arguably Bertrand Russell. So I don't know if you guys know any of those names, but it's quite the who's who of philosophers. What he's saying here is that this idea of panpsychism goes back a long ways. And he's providing evidence by using the names Thales and Heraclitus. Those are ancient Greek pre-Socratic philosophers. They go back way before Plato. And uh, here you have um, big names in the history of Western philosophy that he's saying were panpsychist or entertained those ideas. That's pretty cool. And then he fast forwards to the Renaissance and talks about Patrici and Bruno. Um, I think Patrizzi, he said, it was the person who coined the term panpsychism. Bruno, uh, and I may be mi misremembering that, Bruno was a man that was uh, burned at the stake for, for having some panpsychist ideas during the Inquisition. Um, and then he goes on to talk about people like Spinoza, who we've talked about many times, Leibniz, who invented calculus with uh, Newton and is a huge, um, huge name in philosophy and mathematics, Schopenhauer, who we, we talked about in the early days of the podcast, that's also somebody I need to get into more, um, but a huge name in philosophy, William James, who we just recently did an episode on. He wrote the book Varieties of Religious Experience and, um, you know, had a huge impact. Um, Alfred, Alfred North Whitehead, who I said we're going to have to get into, and you'll see why today. And then Bertrand Russell, who's somebody that I admire, you know, he's got uh, a relatively modern philosopher, English philosopher, um, who wrote and said some tremendously powerful things. Um, I was introduced to him from a, a book that was like a summary, a history of Western philosophy, basically. It's like philosophy for dummies. Uh, if you want to know what all the great philosophers said, but you don't want to go and read all, the, all of their shit, then you just pick up a copy of Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy. It's a big book, but you can take it chunk by chunk and get a pretty good idea of what all the philosophers believed. Point is, Bertrand Russell had quite the handle on Western philosophy and uh, contributed in lots of interesting ways. Um, I resisted... Bertrand Russell a bit because he was an atheist, and uh, clearly I don't, I don't believe that. Uh, but that's somebody who I'm going to have to get into even more. So, 
Thank you, Dr. Shirsted Hughes, for giving me a bunch of homework uh, to do. That, that being said, let's get into it. All right, I'm going to call this first section, What is it? Panpsychism, what is it? Uh, the good doctor, he answers this way. He says, the word panpsychism is a renaissance compound of the ancient Greek pan, which means all, and psyche, which means mind or soul. And then he gives this explanation, really short and sweet. All of matter includes mind. Okay, so we heard some of that from David Chalmers um, and the episodes we've done on him lately. And we, we already knew, you know, we already talked about panpsychism breaking down in the, in, in the Greek, you know, pan, all, and psyche, mind. So everything is mind. Everything is soul. Everything is consciousness. Something like that. And then he clarifies by saying, all of matter includes consciousness. So we're going to have to flesh that out. We're going to have to figure out exactly what he means by that. But that, that is the short and sweet answer to what is panpsychism. It means that everything is consciousness. And what that means is something like even the material world, the thing that's matter. You know, we often think about mind and matter as separate. He's saying, oh no, all of matter includes mind. So it's not clear whether that means that consciousness is, it has a component to it, or excuse me, matter has a component to it that's conscious, or matter is consciousness. You know, it's not clear what that means, but we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna see that in just a bit. That is how he answers the question, what is panpsychism? All matter includes minds. But he does us one better, and he gives us a, a bit of uh, what it's not. So let's talk about what panpsychism isn't, okay? He says, it is unlike idealism in that it takes matter to be real rather than a mere projection of the mind. It is unlike dualism in that it does not take mind to be separate from matter, but rather it takes mind to be intrinsic to matter. And it is unlike physicalism as understood to imply that most matter is insentient. All right, let's pump the brakes. Uh, that's going to take some explanation. All right, so whenever you dive into any philosophical idea, you know, it could be a political one, it could be, you know, in this case, a philosophy of mind, it could be any topic you want. But when you jump into something that philosophers have talked about to any degree, what you're going to find is a difference of opinion. And those difference of opinion, think about this like religious denominations. The difference of opinion breaks up into factions, and this is what philosophers love to do. They love to define things and put things in boxes, because that's what helps you to understand them. That's what helps you to use them. Uh, you know, that's what helps you to get to get by in the world. Um, you've got to put things in a box. So whenever you have philosophers with differing opinion, what that means is you end up with different philosophies, just like you end up with different religions with with you know variants and denominations and beliefs. And you end up with lots of isms. And this is my objection, my biggest objection to reading philosophy. And again, this is probably related back to what I said earlier about having an appreciation for the precision of language and words and what they mean. Talking about the difference between using the word consciousness and using the word sentience, it does make a big difference. So I'm a little bit on both sides of this argument. Um, I think that when you read philosophy and, you have to, and you're reading all these isms like we just did, idealism, dualism, physicalism. It's like, wait a minute, man, now I have to look those up? Now I have to figure out what that means? It just makes reading philosophy more difficult. And I also object a lot to the idea that you can fit 
ideas into a box cleanly because you can't because the edges are fuzzy and when you try to explain to somebody what idealism is or what dualism is the truth is ideal it's it's not that thing it includes those fuzzy edges that aren't exactly what you what you mean by idealism or dualism or whatever there's no clear cut definitions as much as philosophers like to think there are so it just makes it challenging so that's what i'm going to try to help you with here um actually i can let uh i can let dr shirstead hughes um explain it which he's going to do in a little bit um but i think it's good because all of these ideas when we're talking about panpsychism and we're talking about idealism dualism physicalism these are all different philosophical approaches to the same thing to understanding the mind body problem mind and matter what are they why are they different are they different what you know what are the differences how do they interact with each other do they interact with each other just what in the same hell is going on that's the mind matter problem all of these isms that we're talking about are different philosophers opinions about how to solve that problem or how how that problem should be or could be solved uh we're going to talk about idealism a little bit but it's something i'm a little bit sensitive to um is that the right word sensitive um i i i like the idea a little bit it it resonates with me a little bit and that comes from the mystic experience idealism is the idea that uh again like he says matter is a projection of the mind matter may not really exist at least not the way we think it does matter what we call matter might actually be something like a projection of the mind whatever that means uh, and again when you have a mystic experience especially that 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 one with the universe experience that i was trying to describe a little earlier that's something that does resonate it's like yeah okay when i had that mystic experience with the thing i remember saying was that everything is god's dream right so what does that mean well, it's like think about your dreams it's like nothing there is really material it all seems to be just like your waking life but it's not real somehow and that's that's the kind of feeling you're left with in mystic intuition that even the real world even matter itself is illusory somehow it's not it's not what it seems to be so this is what i mean when i say i'm um sympathetic that's the word i was looking for to idealism Okay, so that's idealism in a nutshell. Dualism is we're all familiar with. Dualism is like um, you know, the difference between matter and uh and mind uh being cut and dry. There there there's no overlap between them. They're two separate things. If you come from the western Christian background, dualism makes perfect sense because rather than talking about mind and matter, you can just go back to talking about body and soul. And that's something that, you know, religions talk about. um Christianity certainly talks about it any kind of aesthetic uh religion um excuse me not aesthetic religion uh the the um any religion that values um like the like the monk lifestyle uh, go, going out and uh a minimalist lifestyle um you know like buddhism comes to mind for instance um these are these are people that believe that there's a that there's a distinction between body and mind and usually if like if you think about the gnostic christians for instance usually they think about the body as being bad and the soul being good and about you being able to like the religious uh, process is something about purifying yourself to become more spiritual and less physical something like that 
uh, like that's possible to become more spirit than than body. And you can think about like the um, um, you think about the uh, the Christian resistance, especially here in uh, the United States, coming coming from our um, uh, from our, uh, uh, our our history here, um, you know, the, pil- the pilgrims and uh, and some some religious groups that weren't uh, uh, they were awful buttoned up, you know. So when you think about like uh, sex and taboos surrounding sex, and even in this country, taboo taboos surrounding language and curse words. Like man, you, you can't imagine. You go over to the UK and you hear people using the word cunt constantly, and you can imagine that happening here, and all of the eyebrows you would get if you if you called somebody that, you know, willy nilly. Those are the kind of things that I'm pointing to when I say we have considered the body in the physical world to be somehow. Um, sinful somehow you know something to avoid uh, and that's that those are the ways in which you can see it in our own culture with these taboos against the body against sex against identifying with you know uh, just think about intoxication and the taboos surrounding that these are all good um, explanations for for trying to understand this dualism that we separate mind and body and it, you know again it fits right into this sort of uh, religious narrative that uh, you know that, that I'm describing. Then there's this idea of physicalism, which you guys will probably know as materialism. Physicalism just means everything is physical. Everything is governed by physical laws. Everything is made of physical substances. Um, physical, material things are all that exist. Okay, that's like the scientific paradigm that we're in now. There is no consciousness. There is no spirit. It's all physical. It's all material. That kind of thing. Um, okay, and so what I mean is, he's, when I say that this is describing what panpsychism is not, again, he's just saying panpsychism, panpsychism is not idealism. It doesn't believe that matter is a projection of the mind. It's not dualism. It doesn't believe that mind and matter are separate, and it's not physicalism or materialism. It doesn't, it doesn't believe that the physical or material are all that exists. There's more to existence than just the physical. Okay, okay. Well, that helps. That helps clarify. Um, but he's going to do a bit, bit more of that. All right, this next uh, segment I'm going to call Consciousness versus Sentience. We talked a little bit about that already, but I'm going to give you uh, Dr. Sote Hughes' explanation. So here we go. Panpsychism differentiates a vast variety of states of sentience. And it mostly attributes sentience to self-systematic entities such as organisms and molecules, rather than to aggregates thereof such as rocks and radiators. Okay, so that's pretty interesting. So here he's making the the he's explaining or making the distinction between consciousness and sentience, and he's saying that panpsychism generally talks about sentience rather than consciousness, and it attributes sentience uh, to self-systematic entities, organisms and molecules he's talking about. Um, Panpsychism is not going to attribute sentience to aggregates of those things, such as rocks and radiators. So to me, that's pretty interesting, and it's it's kind of hard to explain. Like, if you, if you believe that an atom or a molecule has some level of experience, why wouldn't a rock? Why wouldn't a radiator? Um, he's going to explain that a little bit later when he's talking about a dead body. He's like, look, you know, at one point uh, a body is full of these things that he would call sentient, you know. Um, 
the microorganisms in, in, in your belly, in your, in your blood, you know, the, on your skin, you know, maybe even the, the, the cells, uh, the molecules that make up those cells, that there's at least parts of this, this larger system that are sentient already, all on their own. But with a human being, it sort of aggregates, and you have this larger sentience in control of all of the others. And that's how you view yourself as a self, you know? Um, when that body dies, the organizing sentience, the, you know, with the thing that you call yourself, that breaks down and, and, and is gone. But all of the other sentience going on inside your cells and in the microorganisms in your body, they haven't gone away. They're still there. Um, so that's how he'd, he'll describe that in a little bit. Now, I find that interesting because if a rock is made of molecules and molecules, he's going to say, are sentient, then why isn't the rock? I don't know. Maybe it's because the rock doesn't have experiences at the level of the rock. Maybe all of the experiences that are being had are at the level of the molecules. But I don't know that that's a satisfactory explanation. I guess what I'm saying here is I don't know that I entirely go with this statement that rocks and radiators aren't conscious or don't have sentience to some degree. Um, I kind of think they do, and I think for the same reasons that he's saying they don't. He's saying molecules have, have sentience, but rocks don't. I, I'm just going to say I'm going to put a question mark there. I don't know that I entirely, I, w I don't know that I would make the statement the same way. All right, he goes on. He says, in the hierarchy of states of mind, consciousness is an uncommon, complex crown of sentience. He says, all has mind, though not all has consciousness. Okay, so that's a pretty good explanation, and I think this is what made sense to me. He said, look, there's all different kinds of sentience. There's all, you know, there's this base consciousness, something you might call awareness or experience. Um, and then there's something more complex and sophisticated, and it's called consciousness. And that's something that you and I display, or maybe we display something even higher, something that I would call self-consciousness. Um, but there you can see animals and, and, and maybe other things that clearly seem to be conscious in the way that we are. So that is something that he says is at the very top of, of this structure of sentience. It's the most sophisticated thing that we know about on that continuum. But there are lots of other types of sentience, and that's equally important. And then he explains, he says, even Plato acknowledged such distinctions. So Plato, he says, stated, the plant is without belief or reason or understanding, but has appetite and a sense of pleasure and pain. So he was deferring to Plato here. Um, by the way, I got to insert here. I've used the quote many, many, many times on this podcast that everything is a footnote to Plato. And that's something that's been said a lot. Now we're talking about Plato here. Um, it turns out Dr. Sot Hughes talks, um, Sherstead Hughes talks a bunch about um, Alfred North Whitehead. And we're going to talk about him uh, today and more in the future. He's the guy that that quoted that that was his quote that everything is all of western philosophy is a series of footnotes to plato so look <laughs> the the you know the uh, the connections you make it's really funny so i've been using that quote many many times now i've discovered that uh, through um through this book that it was actually whitehead's quote so there you have it uh but here we go he's saying that uh you know plato's describing that plants seem to have some of the of the qualities that we would call sentience or, or conscious and, and he talks about that being a sense of pleasure and pain and even a, even an appetite you know you can see a, a flower following the sun why because it's drinking that shit up 
because it's it's you know using that light for photosynthesis. That's that's feeding the plant, right? So that that shows that it has a will and it has an appetite. You know, that's amazing, and it's true. You can see that. It's hard to write that off. It's hard to say that a plant isn't conscious when it's described when it's illustrating those sorts of characteristics. <clears throat> All right, this section I'm going to call the mind-body problem. All right, so uh, it goes like this. The problem of understanding the relation between mind and matter has brought human understanding to an impasse. The question is how something describable in physical, spatio-temporal terms, such as neuronal activity, can relate to something that cannot be described in spatio-temporal, such as melancholy or curiosity. We know that mind and matter can be correlated, but we do not know the nature of that correlation. So this is the mind-body problem in a nutshell. It's like we know that the mind, that consciousness, and the body, the physical part of ourselves, they, they seem to be very different things. And it's hard, you can't explain one using the other, or the other use, you know, you, you can't. It's, so there's this, there's this strange dichotomy between mind and body that we're struggling with. The way that, uh, the way that uh, Dr. Sherstead Hughes talks about it is saying, you can't describe something like melancholy or curiosity, something that's subjective, something that's part of our ex inner experience. You can't explain that. Uh, using anything physical or what he calls spatio-temporal. That just means bound by space and time. It's just like the, the, the reality that we exist in. You can't use anything um, from that realm to describe or explain curiosity, this, this inner experience. That, that, that's what David Chalmers calls qualia. You, know? you can't. So that's basically a summary of David Chalmers' argument right there. And he says that that they're correlated. We know that states of mind, that physical states in the brain are correlated with these qualia, like something like melancholy or curiosity. We know that they're correlated, but we just have no idea what the correlation is or what it means or how it works. Um, that's actually what the next bit of the David Chalmers episode is going to talk about, is exactly that, the correlation and how that might be able to be used to come up with a new theory of consciousness. I'm going to leave that for Chalmers, but... But this is a good summary of the mind-body problem. Now he goes on, he says, a popular proposed solution is emergentism. We talked about emergence before on this podcast. Uh, I'm going to uh, let Dr. Hughes continue. He says, he's defining emergentism here. He says, that mental states emerge from physical states. Okay, so this is what the scientific paradigm would want you to believe or would have you believe that the qualia, the inner experience that you can't explain by physical laws at all, that they emerge, your consciousness emerges from physical states, from something physical. Okay, so something non-physical emerges from something physical. That is what the scientists want you to believe. Um, Dr. Sherstead Hughes says, the problem here is that there are no known bridge laws that could describe how such emergence takes place. Okay, so, so there, there, there's basically a, a, what David Chalmers calls an explanatory gap. Okay, there's, there's nothing that takes you from the non-physical to the physical or back. There's no known laws of physics that can do that. So there's something missing here. Emergentism might seem like, a, like an interesting idea, but in practice, 
we haven't the slightest idea how it could be possible. So that's a pretty critical flaw. He says, there are other more extreme proposed solutions to the mind-matter problem, such as physicalist limitivism. Okay, so this is more isms that we have to talk about. Physicalist limitivism, which denies the existence of mind, and its contrary, subjective idealism, which denies the existence of matter. Okay, so to me, this is like science versus mysticism. And let me just talk about these isms a little bit. So physicalist, um, physicalist uh, alimentivism, you, you know, again, you're looking at the words physical and, uh, you know, to eliminate, right? So the idea is that it, it denies the existence of mind. Um, then you've got subjective idealism, which denies the existence of matter. So we can potentially, we can get around the mind-body problem by saying only mind exists or only matter exists. And in that way, we can eliminate this, this problem of thinking that they're two separate distinct things and yet, you know, interacting or emerging from one another. We can just, we can just go right around that problem uh, by saying either it's just really, it's just mind and there is no matter or it's just matter and there is no mind. Um, and again, I think, I think that that's science versus mysticism. Science is the one that wants you to believe everything is physical because science can't be used to describe the, the, the non-physical. Then we just want to ignore it and say everything is physical. And mysticism, like I talked about earlier with my own mystic experience, having one of these one with the universe experiences, you want to believe that consciousness is all there is and that matter doesn't exist or it's just a part of consciousness somehow. Um, so I think that is a really good way of understanding uh, these other potential solutions. It's also important to note that Dr. Sherstead Hughes says that there are more extreme proposals, which uh, presumably means that you know they're a little bit, a little bit more difficult to believe, um, and you can kind of see why, because you're, if you're saying only matter exists or only mind exists, you know deep down that you're leaving something unexplained, and so there you have it. So this is where he, he swoops in and says, from this background, panpsychism begins to be seen as a potentially clear exit road, which may lead to a more comprehensive view of reality. So it doesn't have to be, he's saying, it doesn't have to be to solve this mind-matter problem that we assume something, you know, out there, like only matter exists or only mind exists, and there isn't, you know, there there everything else is an illusion. The idea that there might be two separate things, that that's an illusion. Panpsychism is coming in to give us a third option. So what is that? Let's, let's, let's get into it. This next section I'm going to call the arguments. Let's make some arguments together, guys. All right, here we go. He says, if one does not believe in panpsychism, then one believes that sentience at one point in time emerged from insentient matter. Fair enough. If you don't believe in panpsychism, he's basically saying you have to, you have to be somebody who believes in emergence. Because if, if, if consciousness is not a part of matter always, then you have to explain it. And to explain it, you're going to say at some point it popped into existence. And this is an interesting kind of evolutionary thought experiment because you can imagine life evolving, you know, uh, from, from 
non-life happens. You know, that's sort of an unexplained miracle, but that happens. And then life becomes more and more sophisticated and evolves in, 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 you know, different directions. And at some point, they become sentient. At some point, they become sentient. Where is that point? Did it happen before life emerged? Did it happen when these when these really basic um, you know proteins and molecules were were fusing together in the primordial soup and eventually would become life? Did it happen before the life barrier? Did it happen after? At what point did it emerge? What is sentient? You know what and when? So these are all questions you have to ask. If you don't believe in panpsychism, then you must believe that consciousness emerged somehow at some point in time. So when and why and how and all these questions come about if you aren't a panpsychist. So that's pretty interesting. You know, it's an interesting way of simplifying the argument down to basically uh, two choices, panpsychism or emergentism. Um, All right, he goes on, he says, by implication, if one does believe in panpsychism, one believes that sentience always existed with matter and thus never emerged at a point in time. Thus, if we reject emergentism, we thereby advocate panpsychism. Right? Seems that way to me. Pretty cut, pretty cut and dry argument. And it, it, to me, it, it, it's, well, it's obviously simpler and easier to understand than what we talked about when we were doing David Chalmers' Conscious Mind. I mean, Chalmers goes into detail uh, addressing every single other approach, these, all these philosophical isms, and then talking about where their strengths and weaknesses are and uh, demolishing them, undermining them. And what Dr. Sherstead Hughes did was said, you know, well, we, you don't really have to go to that level of analysis. All you have to do is look at the problem this way. Did the sentience, has sentience always existed or did it emerge? Did it, did it come into existence at some point in time? That's the question. If you can answer that question, um, then the, the rest of those details aren't important. And I think I agree. I think I agree. And this is interesting, too, because there are parallels here. When we're talking about consciousness, there are always parallels to ontology, to how the universe was created. And it, it has something to do with the fact that our consciousness seems I don't know how to put this. It's like when we opened our eyes, when we were born, and we opened up our eyes, it's like the world began. And, and you know, you could take that even further and say that when you, when you first started to have experiences as a fetus, let's say, then the world started to unfold for you. And when you die, the world kind of shuts off. The world is born when you are born, and the world dies when you die. That's our experience. So there's this always a connection between consciousness and creation, between consciousness and stories of origins and religion. There is always this parallel. And one of the things that was sort that was mind bendy for me and set me off into this um, whole other area of research was thinking about, as a teenager, really thinking about the question of the creation. Um, thinking about it from a theological perspective, God created the cosmos, and thinking about it from a scientific perspective, like there were conditions that caused the Big Bang, and because of physical laws and gravity and so forth, everything sort of unfolded the way it did, and thinking about both of those ideas. And this is what occurred to me. It's exactly the argument that Dr. Sherstead Hughes made about consciousness. Either God always existed, 
and the cosmos always existed. Or God created the cosmos and it came into existence at a certain point in time. And that's the same argument he's making about consciousness. Either consciousness always existed or, and again I should be using the word sentience rather than consciousness, forgive me, either sentience always existed or it came into existence at some point in time. So there's, that, that's really the only way to look at either one of those questions. And I think it's, I'm going to leave it to you to kind, of, uh, to kind of unravel what I mean by that, but I think it's particularly interesting that the argument about consciousness and the argument about the creation of the world, of, of the material uh, reality, that those arguments are basically the same arguments. And you can simplify them down to this, this either-or scenario. All right, moving on. Um, he provides examples of emergence um, so that we can try to get our, our head around it. He says this, he says, A whirlpool emerges from water. Water emerges from H2O molecules. Then he says, But the patterned movement of particles in the brain makes emerge mental states that cannot be observed is a claim that is not scientific. So this is another jab at the idea of emergence. It's like you can see how a whirlpool emerges from water. You get that you get this thing that's not exactly water. It's a whirlpool. It's something that's possible, uh, you know, when you have water, but that it can emerge under the right circumstances. You get this new thing called a whirlpool from this other thing called water. And he says the same thing about water. He says you can take these these hydrogen and oxygen molecules, you put them together in a certain way, and water, this liquidy substance that we can pick up with our hands and drip out of our fingers and put in a glass and drink, that this thing emerges from H2O. So you have one thing, these molecules, and they create this other thing. And there's one way which we, which we would say, no, water and H2O are the same thing. But are they? Are they? If you have a couple of H2O molecules in your in the palm of your hand you know is that the same thing as swimming in the ocean i don't know so there's this way of understanding emergences as something new coming from coming from itself and that's an interesting and mystical uh thought which i kind of like but what he's saying um when it comes to the brain He's saying that when you look at the physical things going on in the brain, you know, the movement of particles within the brain, to try to think that from those particles moving in the brain, you know, electro electroactivity in your neurons, let's say, from that activity, mental states that can't be observed scientifically, that they emerge from that, like, like, a, like water emerges from H2O? He's like, that is not a scientific claim. Not, not only for the reason that those mental states can't be observed. And if they can't be observed, they can't be tested scientifically. Um, but because there is an explanatory gap between the physical and the non-physical, there are no known bridge laws, as he said. All right, he, here he says, there are no known laws of nature that can render the emergence of emotion from motion, of sentience from insentience. Furthermore, emergentism cannot accommodate mental causation. And he explains that by saying that mental events such as desires can have an effect upon the world. He says, as mentality is not an accepted force of nature. So this is interesting. So imagine this. A scientist is going to say, 
Everything is physical. Everything can be explained by physical laws. So there is no role in mind as a cause and effect uh, situation in the world. Everything's physical. You know, if you if you uh, exert a force on an object, the object moves. There is nothing more going on than the physical. That's what the science, you know, modern scientific paradigm wants you to think. But he says, what about something like desire? Is it not fair to say that your desire, which is this inner state that can't be explained physically at all, that your desire is causing you to go and do something physical? Isn't it possible that something like that has a causal role in the physical world? Well, he says, look, scientists are going to say mentality, desire, is not an accepted force of nature. It's not gravity. It's not the weak uh, nuclear force or the strong nuclear force. It's none of these things that scientists say drives the whole, you know, the whole physical system. It's something else. So there's no place in the, in, in the world for that. And so this is a, another fatal flaw of emergentism because it doesn't accommodate mental causation. That's interesting. And this whole sentence here, the, that the emergence of emotion from motion, I just want to say, that's a, that's a beautifully crafted sentence. So emotion is one of these internal states. It's not something that can be observed. It's not something that, uh, you know, that, that any other human being can tap into and experience your experience. It's, it's, it's personal and, and subjective in you know, the way that only consciousness is. So he's like, you, you don't get that. You don't get emotion from what, from motion, which is one of these physical, you know, laws, these physical qualities of the world. You don't get emotion from motion. I love it. I love it. Now he's going to quote Isaac Newton while we're talking about mental causation. And I think this is pretty interesting. He said, even Isaac Newton allowed for the possibility of mental causation. And with it, the suggestion of panpsychism. So here's the quote by Newton. We find in ourselves a power of moving our bodies by our thoughts. But how this is done and by what laws, we do not know. It appears that there are other laws of motion, and this is enough to justify and encourage our search after them. We cannot say that all of nature is not alive. Okay. That's beautiful. I didn't, I've never seen that Newton quote. That's amazing. So we all know that Newton, he coined the laws of motion, you know, the laws of, of thermodynamics. I don't know, but he quoted them. Um, he, he figured them out. And one of those things is, um, you know, I, I can't quote them from memory exactly, but one of those things is that, you know, when, with, when something's in motion, it's going to continue to be in motion unless acted upon by another force. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You guys remember, Newton, Newton figured these, these laws of motion out to describe how all these physical things work in the world. He's the guy that figured out the laws of motion. And what does he say here? He says, we find in ourselves a power of moving our bodies by our thoughts. But how this is done and by what laws, we don't know. Here's the kicker. It appears that there are other laws of motion. Unbelievable. So here you have Isaac Newton, who figured out the laws of motion, coming, coming up with this statement that says, look, I haven't figured out all of the laws of motion because I can admit that by my thoughts, I move my fingers and my arms and my legs. I, I walk from here to there. By my thoughts, I move. And that is unknown. How I do it, 
what the laws are that govern that, that is something that's missing from Newton's laws of motion. And he's coming out and saying that. Have you ever heard that? That's amazing. That is amazing. And then when he, when he proposes that there must be other laws that govern that type of thing, I have to say, going back to David Chalmers, he actually, he actually talks about that in Conscious Mind. He says that there are laws that can be discovered that govern the relationship between mind and matter. He calls them psychophysical laws. So here we have Newton going way back, saying there must be other laws of motion. And David Chalmers stepping in to say, you bet your ass there are. They're called psychophysical laws. That's interesting. All right, another quote for you. He says, the founder of population genetics, the evolutionist Seawall Wright, he says this, the evolution of a new organ involves nothing more mysterious than differential growth. Emergence of mind from no mind at all is sheer magic. Mind must already have been there when life arose and indeed must be a universal aspect of existence. All right, so this is put in there obviously to bolster the argument about panpsychism, but here you have an evolutionist and a particularly noteworthy evolutionist. He's saying that, look, if you know evolution drives the changing of biology, and it's no surprise, there's nothing mysterious about how uh, one organ evolves from, from another. All it takes is differential growth. All it takes is the organ growing and changing in a different way than, than another one, and eventually it will become something new. So he says, I got no problem with that. That's evolution. But how mind emerges from no mind how consciousness or sentience emerges from insentience. He says that is sheer magic. I love that. Because it fucking is, man. Just like how the cosmos was born, if it was born, or how it's always existed, if it's always existed. Either one of the answers to those questions, magic. I have no freaking idea. Um, you know, that, that's the, the phrase of last resort when we can't explain something. It's like magic. He said it must have always existed and, and not arose at some point. It must have always existed as a universal aspect of existence. Well, I can't argue with you, Dr. Sherstead Hughes. That's what panpsychism is. And here you have it from uh, Seawall Wright. He says, Wright points out that this alleged emergence would present the occurrence of magic, not only during the course of evolution, but even, even during each pregnancy. So there's another quote here, but I just got to stop. That's amazing. Let me, let me try to expound on that. So he says that if sentience emerges at some point in time, that magic, whatever that is, that's caused that, because again, there are no bridge laws, there's an explanatory gap. How that happened is fucking magic. It's anybody's guess. So how that, how that magic happened, it wasn't just one random event. It didn't just happen when biological organisms first became sentient, like it just happened. If you think that that was the case, you have to also say that that same highly uh, improbable magical event happens every single time a baby is born or every single time a baby is conceived. Because why? Because sentience is there. How did it get there? It must have been this magic moment, like we're describing, happening in the in the you know prehistoric you know primordial past. 
So here's, uh, here's the, the quote that goes along with it. He says, The emergence of mind in the course of individual development from the fertilized egg presents a similar problem, and one that is an everyday occurrence instead of a single event in the remote past. It would appear that the mind of a human being must develop from something of the nature of mind in the fertilized egg, in the separate germ cells, and in the nucleic acid molecules. <sighs> Buddy, hair is standing up on my arms. So whatever it is that makes something sentient, he's calling that mind, but whatever it is that makes you sentient, your consciousness, it must be there in the sperm, in the egg, and even in the DNA. So now we're taking consciousness and we're putting it in a molecule. It's not even a living thing all by itself exactly. That's, that's interesting. But the question, the question that's being raised here, I think, is such a good one. It, at least it's a Achilles heel situation for emergentism. It, it seems to be. Because if you're calling it magic, and you're saying it's unexplainable, and maybe one day it will be explainable, but for now, it's unexplainable. And scientists will like to do that. They like to say, listen, impossible things happen over, over, over enough time because of random events. Random events change your DNA. That drives evolution. Random, random events like an asteroid hitting the Earth change the environment. You know, these things happen one in a million, like how a scientist might describe life coming from no life or, you know, uh, the Big Bang, for instance. That these one in a million impossible situations will happen randomly. They don't need a God. They don't need an explanation. They will just happen given enough time. Given enough time. Everything that can happen will happen. That's the way they explain it. And that might be a, that might be a satisfactory explanation when you're talking about the idea that, that organ, like the primordial soup you know, in the ocean of the, of the early earth um, somehow created compounds and molecules and then eventually life. That that moment where life sprang into being, that Frankenstein moment, that that might be this random, no explanation, impossible, one in a trillion event that happened. And you might be able to satisfy yourself with that. But then to remember that every time a sperm meets an egg, you have another conscious creature born. Then you have to say that random, one in a trillion, magical event happens every day, thousands of times a day, not just with human beings, but with all creatures that are reproducing, both sexually and asexually. Think about that. Think about a, a cell or, you know, that splits into two. If one cell is conscious, the other cell also must be conscious. What happened there? How did that, how did that cell split into two and its consciousness split into two? How did that happen? That's a magical miracle of unexplainableness. That's what that is. Oh, boy. That's a good, that's a good bit, Dr. Shurstead Hughes. Good bit. All right. He says, if we reject the notion that mind emerged and that emerges from matter, then we ipso facto accept that mind always existed with matter. And that's panpsychism. So if we, if we can't go with emergence, then we have to go with panpsychism. There's no... There's no option C. All right, this next section I'm going to call, What About Material Science? Is there more to matter? All right, let's get into that. 
All right, the doctor says, understanding matter structurally is akin to understanding a scallop as being merely its shell. Panpsychism sees the inner life. Okay, that's another great sentence uh, to, to help understand this. So when he says understanding matter structurally, what, what he means is looking at something material and examining its structure. That's what he means. What is it made of? How does it interact? What is its structure? That's what science does. And he says understanding matter like that is understanding a scallop by only looking at its shell. You're only looking at the outside. You're not looking at the inside. What does he mean by inside? He means your subjective experience. What it's like to be you. What it's like to be Chris. My experiences. Um, th those things are more than the physical. You know, they're, they're things like the qualia that David Chalmers talks about. You know, like my emotional states. You know, um, all the subjective stuff about my experience, my, you know, what color is like for me, what, t what tastes are like for me, you know, that sort of thing. There's something more there. There's something internal. There's an experience happening inside that's different from what's happening outside. And understanding matter that way, only from the outside, is like understanding a scallop only by its shell. You're missing something. Great. All right. He goes on, he says, Descartes' concept of matter was characterized by a single property, extension. Okay, so now we're talking about René Descartes, uh, the guy that said, I think, therefore I am. Um, I like Descartes. Um, Dr. Scher said Hughes has some objections to Descartes, especially given that his ideas, the influence his ideas had on modern materialist science. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit. But when Descartes talked about matter, what he was basically able to say about it, and he was a skeptic, so he was able to basically be skeptical about as much as he possibly could. One of those things that he, that he couldn't be skeptical about was that he thinks, therefore, he is. Another thing he couldn't be skeptical about is that matter has a property called extension. Matter extends into the world. It has it fills space and time. Matter has something called extension. He couldn't again. This was a day day and age before sophisticated technology. He couldn't say more about what matter is. He could be skeptical about everything else, but what he couldn't was that if matter exists, it has this property. It, it has extension. That's one of those philosophical things. So let's keep going. Let's plow through. He says. As our knowledge advanced over time, further properties were attributed to matter, such as nuclear force, mass, decay, spin, and so on. So we realize that former conceptions of matter exclude properties which we now consider essential to what matter is. Yet, there is no reason to believe that we have reached a sufficiency in our understanding of matter. So what is he saying here? He's saying that when Descartes said matter had this property called extension that we could all agree is the case. We later found out that matter also has other properties, not just extension. They don't just fill a certain space and time. They also have these forces associated with them, nuclear forces, spin, uh, you know, all these different, different things. So there's more to it. There's more to matter than just extension. There's these other properties. So that's, that's interesting. The point he's making is, might there be other properties still? Might we have extension, nuclear force, mass decay, spin, and sentience? So might there be something else missing, and might that be sentience? 
And wouldn't it be arrogant of us to think that, oh no, we used to think we had it penned when we said extension. Now we have it penned with extension, mass decay, spin, and so on. No, that's the, that's the height of arrogance. It's absolutely possible that there's things we don't, still, things that we don't know about matter. And might one of them be sentience? Question mark. All right, he says, physicalism, again, remember, that's just materialism, seeks to reduce mind to matter. Idealism seeks to reduce matter to mind. But panpsychism seeks to fuse Descartes' division by placing mind in matter. So there it is. Panpsychism places mind in matter. So matter is sentient, period, full stop. He says, we perceive certain outer structural features of the, of the matter surrounding us, uh, an object size, shape, location, velocity, etc., and can speculate whether matter has further intrinsic properties to which we are not privy, and whether such properties are sentient in nature. That's exactly it. Might there be other properties, like when we're looking at the... Uh, at the scallop, might there be other properties apart from its shell, properties inside the scallop? And by inside, in this case, he's talking about the mind. Might there be other properties that we're not privy to, like sentience, right? You're not privy to that. You look around you, at your family and your friends and strangers, you think they're sentient, you assume they're sentient like you are, but how do you know? You don't know. You're not privy to what's going on inside. And yet, you still have every reason to believe there are things going on inside. Why? Because there are things going on inside of you. All right, he goes on. He says, Physicalist ideology only presents matter's structure, but not its content. I think that's related to something Kyle and I tried to talk about. And I'm still baffled by this, by the way. Um, the question about what something does being the same as what it is because this is what science tries to do it says that a that a an electron has spin and charge and velocity and momentum and all that stuff so when you ask a scientist what an electron is that's that's how they answer they tell you what it does its structure how it interacts with other things what it does but not what it is it's not clear to me if they're the same or not you know, and in this materialistic view, it does seem to be the same. And I think what's missing in that for me, the gap between what something is and what something does, is this internal part that's not captured by what it does. You know, what you are is consciousness. You know, it's like your body and what you do and you know, how you're put together is it's part of it, but I don't know how, how significant that part is. You don't, you don't identify with your body the same way you identify with your consciousness. I mean, you can, you can lose parts of your body. You can lose your limbs, let's say. Your appendix, let's say. Your adenoids, let's say. But your consciousness is still intact. Can you imagine losing a piece of your consciousness? You know, what would that even mean? All right, he goes on. He says... It would not be prudent to believe that we have today finally reached a complete, concrete knowledge of what matter is. It would be more imprudent still to believe that we can explain sentience through this current understanding of matter. Okay. Absolutely. He says, a full physical description of your body and behavior will not be a full description of yourself. 
it will omit your sentience. And there it is. There it is right there. You can have a full description of your body and your behavior. But that's not what you are. It's leaving out something. Your sentience, your consciousness. Exactly. Then he says, all of reality is alive. It is our conceptualization that creates the illusion that most of nature is dead. That the shell alone is the organism. Even a corpse will contain a multiplicity of sentiences, though no longer unified by the higher deceased one. The scientific method is here not sufficient, as it is based on the experience of structure, not the experience of other experience. That's great, man. That is great. That's exactly right. The experience of experience. That is what's not described by by science, by materialist science. What is the experience of experience? Sentience. Self-consciousness. That's what that sounds like to me. So, this idea that all of reality is alive, I think, is interesting. By that, he means all of reality is sentient. And the, and the distinction between alive and sentient is interesting. And we're going to talk more about that, in, actually, in the next section. Because what is that? What does it mean for something to be alive versus sentient? Are they the same thing? Or does sentience go back even below the level of alive? Huh. All right, let's call this next section, How Do We Draw the Line? All right, Dr. Schurstedt-Hughes says, We can but infer sentience in other organisms rather than verify it. And people will differ in their guessed inferences. Some might stop sentience at the lobster limit. Others might stop at the beetle border. But why stop at all? If one demands a stop the determining criterion must be established. And this is great. This is that idea I brought up earlier about the borders being fuzzy. So when he says we can infer sentience, that what he means is that I can't go into your head and know what it's like to be you and confirm, yep, you are sentient because I've been there and I've seen it. We can't do that. So we have to infer it. We have to look at something and say, okay, they're probably conscious like I am or they're probably conscious in some way. And we, we have to infer it from the outside he says people will differ in how they do that. Some people will look at things and say, okay, we, I can go all the way down to the lobster, but anything simpler than that, like a, like a scallop, let's say, or a mussel, um, or a sea anemone or something, maybe they're not sentient. Maybe I don't think they are. Others might go all the way down to a beetle and say, okay, anything simpler than a beetle is not, is not conscious. But why stop at all? That's what he says. Where do we draw the line? And if you're going to draw a line at, at certain types of of animals or plants or fungi or microorganisms or even or even molecules you have to have you have to have a way of drawing that line that's the criterion he says if you don't have that then what's keeping you from stopping keep on going all the way down and assume sentience infer and sentience all the way down turtles all the way down you guys all right he goes on he says if one pro proposes the criterion that a being can sense and adapt to its environment, then one has almost become a panpsychist by allowing for the sentience of plants. Okay, so here he's saying people are going to draw the line wherever they are going to draw the line. 
But if you draw the line by saying, okay, something is conscious or sentient, if it can sense and adapt to its environment, then you have to assume plants are in that, are in that category. And then plants are sentient. He says, for instance, biologist Daniel Chamowitz, he writes, we now know that Arabidopsis, that's the genus species name of a plant, so forgive me, Arabidopsis has at least 11 different photoreceptors. Some tell a plant when to germinate. Some tell it when to bend to the light. Some tell it when to flower. And some, te- and some let it know when it's night. Some let the plant know that there's a lot of light hitting it. Some let it know that the light is dim. And some help keep, it, uh, help keep time. So what's interesting to me here, and I think the reason he brings this quote up, is because this biologist who's studying this plant, he uses the word know. And he talks about all these photoreceptors. Like, the plant has more photoreceptors than, let's say, a human being does. So it's sensing the light in ways that human beings can't. And the light is telling it what to do or what it can do. So he actually uses the word know. He says, some let the plant know there's a lot of light hitting it. Some let it know that it light is dim. Right? So it, to use the word know in reference to a plant, that's a giveaway that you, that you believe the plant to be sentient somehow. Because, because how, how can it know anything? You know, knowledge is something that only consciousness has, right? Then he goes on, he says, plants do not have neurons. They have other parts by which they transmit information, as do single-celled organisms, viruses, molecules, and more. The point is made by the distinguished mycologist Paul Stamets. All right, so here's a Paul Stamets quote. For those of you who don't know Paul Stamets, we talked about him on the podcast before, but he's been on Rogan's podcast several times. I highly, highly encourage you to check those out. Um, He's a mushroom scientist, and he uh, is a fascinating guy. Here's his quote. He says, I see mycelium as an exposed sentient membrane, aware and responsive to changes in its environment. As hikers, deer, or insects walk across these sensitive filamentous nets, they leave impressions, and mycelia sense and respond to these movements. Okay, so mycelium is not the mushroom itself, but like the roots, the system of roots that go down into the earth. Some of them go miles and miles and miles. Those roots are where the mushrooms kind of um, sprout from uh, up, you know, up above the surface of the earth. So mycelium is really the the organism. Uh, the mushroom is just the fruiting body that comes up out of the ground. He's saying that the mycelium web under the ground is a sentient membrane. He says it senses and responds to the environment. So here, you've got stamens. He goes as far as to use the word sense and respond, talking about fungi. So now we have to include fungi. We we include plants. And now we have to include fungi. All right, he goes on, he says, A human brain may be necessary for human consciousness, but it cannot be deemed necessary for consciousness, let alone sentience. This is, this is another great way of illustrating this. He says, While an orchestra is necessary for a symphony, it is not necessary for music generally, let alone sound. So that analogy is great, trying to understand why he uses the word sentience instead of consciousness, he's like, look, there are different types of sentience. A symphony might be like describing consciousness. But there's other things 
to sound. There's other types of music that are simpler, less grand. And then there's just sound all by itself. Imagine all of those are, are sentience. They're, this is an analogy to different types of sentience. I think it's great. All right, he says, if we limit the inference to behavior or sensation, we would have to include plants, fungi, viruses, and other microbes as well. Thus, nearing panpsychism already. He says, the biologist H.S. Jennings, uh, in observing the behavior of an amoeba, could hardly help attributing to it consciousness. So another biologist looking at this single-celled organism, this amoeba going around under a microscope, watching it and saying, look, this thing has some sentience. It knows what it's doing. It's having experiences. So the point is, it's not clear where or how you can draw the line between what is sentient and what is not. All right, let's call this next section. Okay, so living things are conscious. What about the non-living? It's a good question, man. What about the non-living? All right, he says this. It may be retorted that though we may justifiably argue sentience to organisms, we, we do not have the justification to include sentience within the inorganic. There is no delineation between what we call living and the non-living. If we attribute sentience to organic molecules, then the continuation to other types of molecules faces no natural barrier, as we have no criterion by which we can stop the inference attributing sentience to creatures without brains, nor to the so-called inorganic. The inference of sentience is extended all the way down through nature. Therefore, panpsychism. I think that's interesting. We talked about it before, but it's a good point. Um, the edges are fuzzy, like I said, and there is no natural delineation between what we call living and what we call non-living. Last time this came up on the podcast, we were talking about sixth grade science and learning about viruses and learning about there being a debate as to whether a virus is alive or not. You know, scientists will say things like, for something to be alive, it has to be able to procreate, it has to be able to uh, have locomotion, it has to be able to move, it has to be able to absorb nutrients and excrete waste, it has to be able, you know, there's these different things that they try to say have to be met for something to be considered alive. And viruses, they satisfy some of them, but not all of them. So they're like this in-between fuzzy case. Is it alive? Is it not alive? What about those prions we talked about? The prions that cause mad cow disease. They're just proteins, but they get in your, they get in your body and they, they wreak havoc, um, just like a, a bacteria or a virus might. So is it alive? It's hard to say. It's one of these fuzzy border situations. There is no clear way for us to say this is living and that is not living. We don't know what the criteria are. That the edges are fuzzy. This is a problem. And if, and if it is a problem, when we, when we recognize that, then we look at what's happening with these molecules. And we say, you know, they, uh, you know they're made up of um, atoms, and those atoms are moving around, and they're inter interacting with one another. So they're having experiences. And so they must be sentient of some kind. And if, and if organic molecules are sentient, why not inorganic molecules? And if that's the case, everything is sentient equals panpsychism. That's the argument. Beautiful. All right, now we're nearing the end. Um, Dr. Sherstead Hughes, uh, in this first chapter, he wants to address not just what panpsychism is uh, and what it's not, but he also 
at the end talks about why there's been resistance to this idea in philosophy and in physics. Why has there been such a resistance to this idea? Uh, it's part of what he what he was getting at when he started talking about Descartes. Um, Philip Goff, who we talked about in terms of panpsychism before, he wrote a book called Galileo's Error. He talks about the same thing in terms of Galileo. He thinks it was it was Galileo's science that caused the uh, you know the um, uh, cascade of sort of ill will towards panpsychism, and uh, uh, and it sounds like Descartes uh, you know shared some uh, contributed some to that. So why why has there been resistance to panpsychism? If it's been around, if it goes way back to Heraclitus and Thales, you know that's 400 BC or something like that. If it goes way back then, why 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 haven't has nobody ever heard of it? Why is nobody talking about it? Why has there been you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of silence on this topic? Well, he's going to try to give us an explanation. So I'm going to give it to you. I'm not. 100% sure I agree with it. I'm going to tell you why, but let me just go uh, go into it. Why is panpsychism spurned today? Firstly, there are common misunderstandings about what panpsychism is, and therefore it is often the victim of the straw man fallacy. Panpsychism does not maintain that chairs, tables, gates, or stables are sentient as unified entities. There are no self-conscious sofas contemplating their contemptuous, servile existence. All right, so that's good. I mean, you can see there's like a, an appeal to just logic and common sense that comes here. It's like, look, if you're saying that everything is, is conscious, um, doesn't that mean that your couch is conscious? And the way he explains this is, I think, partly satisfying. He says, panpsychism does not maintain that chairs, tables, gates, or stables are sentient as unified entities. So this goes back to that description of the dead body. It's like the dead body is made up of these cells and viruses and bacteria, and even though the, the person is dead, the organizing unity is dead, um, the, all those sentient beings are still there. You know, They're probably dying too, but they're still there. Um, so this is the explanation for why the molecules that make up the table are sentient, but the table itself isn't because it's not organized like uh, a human being is organized. It's not organized like a multicellular organism is organized. That's what I mean by it's being partly satisfying. It kind of makes sense. I wish there was more explanation to it, but, uh, but I think it's still good. It's like, look, you, you can still see that everything that, that the world is composed of is sentient and that certain parts of it are organized into higher sentiences. And some of those are, are even what he calls the crown of sentience, conscious, like you and I. Uh, but not everything, right? So some of these entities, like a table, uh, is sentient on the level of the, of the molecules or atoms, but not at the level of the table. So it's not clear to me what makes the distinction. I kind of feel like there's still an argument to be made that at least in some way, the table is conscious or, or sentient, rather. But I think the I think the operative word is sentient as unified entities. They're sentient, but not as at the level of the table. Something like that. That's the best I can do uh, to make that clear. Uh, okay, so he just overcomes that idea by saying, "Look, um, 
you know, it might seem illogical to think about a chair as conscious, but that's because a chair isn't. The molecules are, are the conscious thing, and uh, it's possible for those conscious those consciousnesses to aggregate and, and unify into a higher higher level consciousness, and that's something like you or I. All right. He also says this: a more rational reason for spurning panpsychism is recognition of its inherent problematic issues, the most significant of which is the combination problem. And this is exactly what I just talked about. The combination problem is, how is it possible for a multiplicity of sentiences to combine to form a unified sentience? That's the idea. If my, all the cells in my body are sentient, how do they form a Chris? How do they, how do they merge into this higher level consciousness that I am? How does that happen? That's unexplainable. That doesn't mean it's an Achilles heel for panpsychism. It just means it hasn't been explained yet. Um, it might still be possible to to explain that, but that's one problem because it is unanswered that people can point to. Um, I think Philip Goff talked about this in Galileo's Error. He talked about integrated information theory, and this is one of these cognitive scientific areas that tries to do exactly that, uh, to, talk, to talk about how um, how consciousness aggregates or how information aggregates in systems. I think that that... It, Integrated information theory extends into the realm of like um, computing and stuff, but uh, I don't. I haven't got into it that deeply. The point is, there are people working on it and trying to figure it out, even from the cognitive science approach. All right, he goes on. He says there are numer- numerous proposed solutions to this problem, to the combination problem, but we can annul the problem as one specifically detrimental to panpsychism by highlighting the point that the combination problem is also a problem for physicalism. He says, as David Chalmers writes, quote, how do microphysical entities and properties come together to yield subjects? This, this challenge is presumably at least as hard as the challenge to panpsychism. Okay, so all he's saying here is this combination problem, you still have that problem with materialism. So how do, how do you know, quantum uh, particles and quantum laws come together to make you? How does that happen? That's still, that's still a mystery. And it's the same sort of mystery that we're talking about with, um, with the, uh, the combination problem. Now, I'll, t- I'll talk about this in the conclusion, but there's a couple places where um, Dr. Schurstedt-Hughes does this, where he answers, um, he answers a problem like this by pointing the finger back to the other direction. And I just have to say, I, I resist that a little bit. I, I don't, I'm not 100% satisfied with answers like that. It just reminds me of like political bickering. Um, you, know, you know, he talked about the straw man fallacy earlier. This to me kind of seems like an ad hominem. It's like, you know, that, that's an attack the man fallacy. So it's like, I'm, I'm just going to point the finger back at you. It just reminds me too much of political bickering to, to, to be 100% satisfying for me. Um, but I, th- I do think it's a way for him to at least say the problem is not unique to panpsychism. So, you know, uh, if, you, if, if you're a materialist, you, you got to contend with the same problem. You can't write off panpsychism and, and be a materialist and, and avoid this problem. He says, another more basic criticism of panpsychism is that it is blatant anthropomorphism. So for those people who don't know what anthropomorphism means, it's often a critique, but it just means to assume something is like a human being. 
because you're a human being, you oftentimes uh, assume other things are, are like you. And you see that kind of thing happen in, in like creative writing all the time. You know, we, we talk about, uh, I don't know, a tree standing or something. Trees don't stand, human beings stand. That, that's, what, that's what's meant by anthrop- anthropomorphism. You know, it's like the sky smiled. No, it didn't, sir. People smile. Um, so this is what he says. He's like, there, there's a more basic criticism of panpsychism that is blatantly anthropomorphic. Attributing human characteristics, by that he means mentality, to non-human entities. He says there are two simple reasons for this. Firstly, to attribute to nature the characteristic of being akin to that of of man-made machines, like a mechanism, is also anthropomorphic. So the accusation cuts both ways. Secondly, to charge panpsychism with anthropomorphism is itself to commit anthropocentrism, to believe that we are unique special in our sentience. So to me, this is a mic drop moment, but it's also just like the one before it. It's a little bit finger pointy. Uh, it's not exactly a defense. It's more of a, hey, this, this you, you don't solve this problem um, you know, by remaining a materialist. So here, here's what he's talking about. It's like people will say that you're reading into it if you, because you're conscious, uh, point to other things and say they're conscious. You're reading into it. Um, but but with the point he makes here is like, okay, if I don't read into it like that, if I don't assume that things are conscious or sentient, then I have to assume um, the materialistic approach, the scientific approach, that everything works like a machine, you know, that everything follows physical laws, the whole cosmos follows physical laws, and it's just like cogs and wheels in a machine uh, doing exactly what these laws say they should do. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And what, uh, what Dr. Sherstead Hughes is saying here is, well, what you're describing is a machine, and human beings make machines. Nature doesn't make machines. So if you're if you're saying that we can't believe that it's that that the, that the cosmos is somehow sentient um, because it's just a mechanism, that you are also anthropomorphizing the problem because nature doesn't make machines, sir. Human beings make machines. So you're falling into the same problem that you're claiming panpsychists are falling into. You see what I mean? And he says the accusation cuts both ways. That's what he means. Uh, but again, not not entirely satisfying to me because it's kind of a finger pointy thing. Uh, but I, I understand why he's doing it. All right, almost done here, guys. He says panpsychism, as well as transget, transgressing the general scientific paradigm, transgresses the Christian one, that the soul was distinct to the material body. Okay, so that's interesting. Now he's bringing in religion into the mix. He's saying panpsychism transgresses Christian theology. What does he mean by that? He goes on, he says, In panpsychism, mankind has no special status distinct from other organisms, and as such is generally opposed to Christianity and other Abrahamic religions. Panpsychism is more akin to the animistic pagan religions that worshipped nature. Thus, in Christendom, Panpsychism has been contrary to both the religious and mechanistic ethos, resulting in it being shunned and even purposefully suppressed. He says the Roman Inquisition burned the panpsychist Giordano Bruno on the stake in 1600. All right, so there's a couple things I'll say about this. I do think that Christianity and Abrahamic religions are subject to the mind-body dualism. They, they think that mind and soul are somehow separate. I don't think that that is doc, doctrinal. I don't think that that goes to um, the Bible. 
I think it's more of a um, philosophy. It's more of the way human beings understand the concept of the soul that's presented in the scriptures. Um, so I do think that the idea that um, that there's a, 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 a dualism, that there's a separation between body and spirit, is not is not biblical. So I think there's a hole in the argument there. It doesn't transgress on on, on Christian theology. It it certainly does on the politics, you know. Um, and religion is obviously wrapped up in politics, um, controlling the narrative in order, in order to control hearts and minds, that kind of thing. Um, and I definitely think that that's the case. Um, you know, convincing people they have a, an immortal soul and that they should that they should sacrifice physical things because it's the spiritual things that are important. You know, that's been used to manipulate people. But I don't believe that that's that that's critical to Christian belief. Uh, I think it's more of a of a political item. Second thing he says is that panpsychism says that mankind has no special status distinct from other organisms. By that he means that all things have a soul, all things are sentient, and so human beings aren't special in that. That I agree with, but I also want to point out uh, earlier when he said consciousness is the crown of sentience, and human beings have an unparalleled form of sentience. So how can you tell me that that that's not distinct from other organisms? Now I still don't think that that religion necessarily um, puts human beings at the in, a, in an apex position above other uh, above, above, above the rest of nature but an argument might be made there um, I definitely think that there's a little bit of um, uh, there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance here where in one point he says human beings have the crown of sentience we have this 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 pinnacle of, of what we call sentience and that's something that human beings call consciousness that's something that we don't share with anybody else any other organism so are we special i kind of think he's saying we are and we aren't all right he, he goes uh, he goes further he says the rejection of panpsychism can be overcome by logical analysis, historical and cultural reflection, and perhaps even by chemical ingestion. Dun, dun, dun. So this is where, at the very end, he references psychedelics. And I'm very hopeful the rest of the book is going to talk more about that. But here he's saying that psychedelic experience is a path to understanding uh, the truth of panpsychism. To that, I couldn't agree more. Then lastly, he says... I believe that the greatest riches in the search for a satisfactory mind-matter theory will be unearthed with inspiration from the, from the world of Alfred North Whitehead, the most distinguished champion of panpsychism in the 20th century. And that's a little bit of a, a foreshadowing, because the next two chapters in the book are about Alf, Alfred North Whitehead, so I will be bringing that to you as soon as I finish, uh, finish those chapters. Um, so it'll be interesting to hear what Alfred North Whitehead had to say on the matter and uh, what's been convincing for uh, Dr. Schurstedt-Hughes. Um, so that'll be next. That brings me to my conclusion monologue. So let me go. Let me read that to you. It's somewhat disappointing that Dr. Hughes's response to so many objections to panpsychism is to point the finger at the opposing argument and showing how the opposition shares the same objections. It is fun to read and a legitimate point, but still somewhat unsatisfying. We saw this in the objection to anthropomorphism and with a combination problem. 
A similar unsatisfactory taste is left in the leap from consciousness to living things, or in living things, to the non-living. The notion is posed that a molecule might be sentient, and if so, then inorganic molecules should be no exception. But I'd like to have more of a fleshed-out explanation. That said, I have never seen a better demolition of the idea that sentience emerges from matter. Remember, I talked about David Chalmers, I talked about Philip Goff, and yet, reading Dr. Shirstead Hughes, I have never seen a better demolition of the idea that sentience emerges from matter. So there, you know, there's a compliment for you. To compare the idea of sentience uh, evolving at some point in our evolutionary history to conception and birth was a brilliant move. In this way, it is easy to see a sort of miracle would be needed to have insentient matter suddenly become sentient. And then if we believe in emergence, that the same sort of miracle would, need, uh, would be needed not just once as a random, impossible, one-in-a-million event, but countless times every single day in the conception of new life across all species everywhere. Even in the division of a cell, you'd have to admit this miracle. If one cell splits in two, both are now sentient. The next brilliant move of logic follows directly from this. Dr. Hughes states, If we reject the notion that mind emerged and emerges from matter, then we ipso facto accept that mind always existed with matter, and therefore panpsychism. And in one fell swoop, the complex argument between panpsychism and modern materialism is reduced to this one single question. If emergence is not real, panpsychism is our best explanation. And that's Occam's razor, my friends. Occam's razor. The simplest solution. And the next chapter in this book focuses on the work of Alfred North Whitehead a man also referenced heavily by David Chalmers. It is a short chapter, but I took a look, and my God, it looks intimidating. I am looking forward to the rest of this book. Let's see what sense I can make of it, and I'll get back to you with part two of Modes of Sentience. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.